Across America, BP supports more than 275,000 jobs to keep energy flowing. Jobs like building grid-scale solar energy in Ohio and producing gas with fewer operational emissions in Texas. It's and, not or. See what doing both means for energy nationwide at bp.com slash investing in America. This Ben Jarofsky show, Benny J bonus interview is brought to you in part by the International Association of Machinists and Aerospace Workers, Local 126 and District 8, the International Brotherhood of Electrical Workers, Local 9, the International Union of Operating Engineers, Local 150, and the Chicago Federation of Labor. Benny J, take it away. It's bonus time on the Ben Jarofsky show. As I speak, it is Friday, November 1st. Damn, it's November already, D. Friday, November 1st, 2019. Of course, this is a podcast. You can be listening to it anytime. Uh, and as we always do in bonus time on the Ben Jarofsky show, I ask my distinguished guest to introduce him or herself. So distinguished guest, introduce yourself. Hi, my name is Chris Giovannis. Um, I am the communications director for the Chicago Teachers Union, a lifelong Chicagoan, born in South Chicago Community Hospital many, many, many decades ago, <laughs> and um, a proud fellow worker and street agitator for as many of those decades as I can remember. Uh, street agitator would be a suffice description of Chris, and I've known Chris for like 4,000 years. Uh, I'd be calling her up. She was uh, leading the charge uh, in the early O's against the war in Iraq, and as such, uh, she would be filling me in. At the time, I believe you were working for one... Were you working for the Strogers then, as a communications... I, I was working for Cook County government. I oh, worked for three Three different presidents <laughs> in Cook County government. Uh, she's correct. And I was me the already. only publicly named whistleblower in that. I, I'm just going to say one thing before end we of move. career disaster. John Stroger has never gotten the respect he deserves. Uh, they, they, when people talk about how great Daly was, Richard M. Daly, they talk about racial peace in Chicago. And a key component of racial peace in Chicago is the role that John Stroger played. That's my two cents about John Stroger, and uh, so... Uh, well, John Stroger cared about black people. Yes, he did. Richie and Daly cared about controlling black people. It's kind of a difference. Whoa, that's deep, man, but it's true. And by the way, John Stroger also had tolerance for you, because you were a troublemaker, and you were, uh, in your, your day job, you were working for Stroger, or excuse me, Cook County government, and in your... Uh, private life, you're, as you said, a street agitator. And he never once, as far as I know, mm -mm. tried to censor you mm -mm. or punish you. And I always appreciated that, that John Stroger, see, I'm, I really like John Stroger. I liked him as a human being, you know, I just thought he was a good guy. Uh, and um, he never tried to punish you, did he? Nope. So let that be. I can't say that of all management at Cook County government. <laughs> uh, but John Stroger, who actually cared about black people, never tried to punish me for... Trying to read between the lines of what Chris is saying. Anyway, uh, when I called and asked Chris to be on the show, the first thing she said, I'm do, I'll do modesty. Don't you want Stacy? That would, of course, be the legendary Stacy Davis Gaze, or as she's known in this show, S. 
DG. But as I pointed out uh, to Chris, Stacy's been on the show many times. Uh, she was on the uh, Fran Spielman show this very day. And on Tuesday, she'll be at the hideout with Maya and myself. So uh, let's bring Chris in, all right? And uh, so you were so kind uh, to um, oblige me. All right. And uh, you're a director of communications. In the old days, they called that a press secretary for the Chicago Teachers Union. The Teachers Union uh, strike officially ended, I think it was last night or yesterday. I've lost track of time. So just in the most general sense, Chris, uh, what was accomplished? What, what's, your just, uh, what's your overall view of what, what just went down with this teacher strike? Well, I think one of the most important things about this strike and the um, essentially year-long contract fight that preceded the strike is that it beat back the legal fiction that we don't have the right to actually ask for what our students and their families need. And we don't have the right to enshrine that in language that is as enforceable for our families as a contract with Sodexo or Aramark is in CPS, even though they do a terrible job with the hundreds and hundreds of millions of dollars that they get. Um, it's uh, as uh, enshrinable in an enforceable contract as uh, the Lincoln Yards handout for a bunch of rich so-and-sos who are going to build another neighborhood on the public dime, not for the public per se, who forked out the dough for that public handout, but for rich people as a new playground in blighted Lincoln Park. Blighted um, in quotes. So, you know, I mean, I think that basically what we said is uh, ordinary working class families in this city, the low-income families that are the backbone of the city, the people that the city itself cannot be sustainable without, but because they're black, because they're Latinx, because we live in an age in a city fraught with institutional racism and vicious classism, that we have as much right to assert for those families whose children we teach that we have a right, whether or not you say it's enshrined in the law, that goes beyond that piece of paper that you jammed through to seize our rights and seize our capacities, and we will seize them back by any means necessary. All right, now let me just uh, help people out a little bit what Chris is alluding to. In 1995, the state of Illinois uh, passed a law, uh, they called it education reform, that gave almost all the control of the Chicago public schools to the mayor, at that point, Richard M. Daley, uh, including uh, the right to appoint the school board, uh, and that's the situation we have now with the school board and the CEO of the schools. Uh, and in addition to that, buried with Within that language, uh, were was uh, uh, bang, buried within that law was language uh, that prevented teachers in the city of Chicago from negotiating over class size and over wraparound employees like nurses, librarians, social workers, etc. So teachers could negotiate and strike over something, let's say, like a pay raise, but they could not negotiate and strike over something like lowering from forty to twenty the number of kids in their classroom. And I, I have. I've always felt, Chris, and feel feel free to vigorously disagree with me, uh, that part of the uh, strategy that Mayor Lightfoot was following when she offered her, the rage that she did and then got editorial endorsements uh, for doing so throughout the city uh, was to put you in a box because their strategy was you can't strike over something like nurses and librarians. You can only strike over money. She gave you the money, so shut up and take the deal. Do you agree or disagree with me on that analysis? Oh, I think that was 
absolutely the public frame. Take the money and run. You know, it's a good, it's a good deal. It's an historically good deal. Um, you know, and there were actually an enormous number of inequities, even in that paper offered just on wages and uh, benefits, because one of our critical goals in this contract fight, because we take a stand for the families who live in this city, who are not rich, who are not politically connected, who don't have clouded insider deals, we take a stand for the kids whose parents rely on our schools to educate their kids. There's a class of workers in that initial deal um, from the mayor who themselves, working for one of the largest public agencies in the city, one of the largest school districts in the nation, themselves live in poverty because those are the wages that one of the wealthiest cities in the nation imposes on them. So lifting up those workers, the teaching assistants, the paraprofessionals, the largely black and brown women who don't just work in the schools but live within walking distance of those schools, who send their kids to those schools, who have a right to a living wage job, who have a right to live in dignity, who give their hearts out to their kids in those schools every day. It was a critical, critical goal of ours to raise those workers out of poverty in the course of our contract negotiations. And the fact is that the deal that the mayor, um, who says she understands poverty, but perhaps it's been too long since she's had any direct experience with it to really grasp what that means. Um, don't know if she's ever worked at Walmart for a second job um, just to keep a roof over her kid's head, like our bargaining team member, Willie Cousins, who lives in Englewood, less than two miles from the Englewood school that he is a teaching aide at. Not sure how much that's really felt on the fifth floor. Um, but we were able to win a contract that will actually get those workers out of poverty. And we think that's important for two reasons. It's important for those workers because they are the backbone of our school communities. They are first and foremost the face that our parents see, the face that our kids see. They are absolutely essential to our school communities. And we think it sets a different standard for how cities under the control of any party or any regime can be allowed to treat their own workers. That was a central linchpin in the battle for SEIU Local 73, whose low-wage workers also stepped out to ask for the same kind of basic equity in one of the richest cities on the planet that you actually pay your workers a living wage. Um, I think one of the other really important components of this was that despite the endless divide and rule strategy, of the big shots and the power brokers, we were able to bring together two unions who are integral to running our schools that stood in solidarity despite the fact that for low-wage workers in both of those unions, it was going to be an enormous hardship to stay on the picket line. Those two unions were? And the SCIU Local 73 and the Chicago Teachers Union, uh, CTU Local 1. Um, that's, that's a... Um, um, really significant structural advance in solidarity. And it was solidarity that was respected by other unions. So you didn't have Teamsters driving UPS trucks delivering to CPS. That's the power of organized labor that stands together in solidarity and unity. It's a break against what can seem to be really daunting and undefeatable um, power and force by 
um, you know, ruling authorities that frankly don't have the best interests of the rest of us at the top of their list. Mm-hmm. Uh, well, and the, just you raising that, I'm going to jump ahead to something that was further down on my topic list. But there was a strong reaction uh, against the Chicago teachers uh, in the editorials of both newspapers. Uh, the Tribune, in particular, was r- vociferous in its hostility to the teachers. Uh, and um, last I looked, the city was 85% Democrat voted for uh, and when it comes to a presidential election. So in general, what, what do you think the reaction uh, of sort of like the leaders of corporate and civic Chicago has been to what the, the teachers have, the teacher strike? Oh, I, there's no more class conscious constituency as small as they are, as that 1%, you know, that represents the wealth, privilege, and power in this city, in this country. Um, and they recognize in terms of their class privilege Um, and their power, um, that um, two unions like SEIU Local 73 and CTU standing together and garnering support from other labor unions represents a real threat to the status quo that has profited them so handsomely and also driven growing inequality um, in the rest of the nation. Um, So I'm not surprised to see the Tribune, which has always had a reactionary and frankly fundamentally dishonest editorial board, um, you know, calling the shots at that shop. It was disappointing, but not surprising to see that from the Sun-Times as well. Um, You know, the editorial boards of newspapers do not necessarily... They just don't function like newsrooms. In a perfect world, um, there's a bright line between editorial and those newsrooms where the reporters report, and it's their job to not be liars and get the facts right as best they can with limited column inches or limited time on TV. And then there is the other side, the editorial board, that always opines for the owners. And when you've got an owner of a newspaper like the Sun-Times that includes somebody like Michael Sachs, who was frankly the arbiter and the orchestrator of some of the worst policy that came out of Rahm Emanuel's administration, was one of the biggest sources of the bank that kept Rahm in power when he was really in danger of losing that race for a second term, I'm not surprised to see that kind of opining. It's disappointing, but it's also a reflection of, you know, who owns the presses, if you will. Um, I also think it's one thing that makes um, social media as flawed as the platforms are in terms of uh, being spaces for really real engagement. Um, I do think it's one of the things that makes alternative media um, and social media engagement is a tool, a way to punch through the spin that you're always going to see from, you know, for example, the local newspapers on the editorial side, you know, land in the corner of the ruling elites who don't want to give up a damned thing to keep their sinecure, to hold on to their cash, to beat back any sort of organized opposition to an agenda that for them is frankly just about their, you know, quarterly bottom line and the rest of us can kiss off. Uh, <laughs> that was quite a riff. Uh, <laughs> I was like, whoa, where's she going to go with this one? Uh, when you say lies, from your vantage point, what were some of the uh, lies? Such a harsh word, Chris. Let's just say. Yeah, let's it, just talk about lying. Uh, okay. Let's talk about lying. Uh, inaccuracies, that have you. Mm. Uh, I, I like lying. You like it? Okay, whatever. I'll go, uh, with, I'll go with inaccuracies. I like the, lying. All right. What are some of the inaccuracies uh, that you confronted uh, regarding the union's position? So it's been 
you know, we actually tried to bargain. You know, we actually tried to treat negotiating like negotiating. We knew that the proposals that we handed to CPS on January 15th, more than 10 months ago, 11 months ago now, um, were not going to be the proposals that ended up being inked in any kind of a tentative agreement. Um, They're aspirational, and some of them were really, really, really aspirational. And some of them were, like, aspirational only because CPS doesn't want to do that kind of stuff. Because CPS and the fifth floor that runs CPS wants the power to basically continue to dole out contracts and consulting gigs to, you know, political insiders rather than actually have to be accountable to the people of the city, particularly the parents, the families um, of the students that um, those schools are responsible for serving. So, um, you know. Uh, we did not throw all of our proposals out on the table. We didn't uh, get any proposals from the city except an initial, or from the uh, CPS initially, except a pretty short document that they traded to us on January 15th that basically said, we'd like to eliminate all of your labor rights and um, we'd like to pretty much give you nothing when it comes to um, wages, including for your lowest wage workers. Those paraprofessionals who are the backbone. Um, But they did not even make a formal salary proposal. They basically handed off a document that said, yeah, the grievance rights you've got to make us do things that aren't terrible, we'd like to see those gone. Um, when was this? When was this offer? These these two proposal? these two sets of proposals were traded on January fifteenth. The first time oh, that was before Mayor Rom. Right. I mean that right. was before Mayor Rom left. The, the first time we got um, a proposal for wages, um, we didn't get it directly. Um, Mayor Lightfoot uh, sent it to the fact finder, which is part of this insane you know, repressive process that's imposed on us, a series of hoops that we have to jump through just to be allowed to consider whether or not we want to authorize a strike if we're not actually getting far enough, fast enough in bargaining. So this fact finder process was imposed on us under ROM. Um, we've gone through it three times in three contract negotiations, it invariably sides with the very, you know, forces that created it you know, as as another cudgel against um, the people who actually hold up the school communities. Um, And that's who the mayor gave her wage proposal to, the fact finder and the press. It took them a week or two to even do us the courtesy of passing that wage proposal across the table um, formally. Um, And on every other demand that we made, And those demands were first and foremost designed to enshrine the promises that Candidate Lightfoot made in a contract that could actually be enforceable. We have a long, long, bitter experience with promises made out of the fifth floor, promises made by CPS, which is controlled by the fifth floor, and seeing those promises broken. So we want those promises for a social worker, a school nurse, enshrined in the contract. When you say you promise a social worker and a school nurse in every school, knowing full well that we have none of that for our students right now, great. 
put it in writing in an enforceable contract. If you can do that for the Lincoln Yards deal, if you can do that for the foreign financial interests that you sold the parking meter revenue to, if you can do that for every other TIF deal that's crossed your transom, if you can do that for Aramark and Sodexo, if you can do that for Forrest Claypool's contracting buddies who got $15 million to figure out how to cut $30 million from the services that special education students are entitled to receive under federal law, then you can put that in a contract with your own workers. That was the basic premise here. Um, Of course, CPS rejected that um, vigorously. They were rejecting that the day before we struck. They rejected that through 10 total months of bargaining. And then they changed their tune. When did they change their tune? The first day we went on strike. So that first day, whenever that was, you went on strike, to the bargaining table came uh, this, the CPS negotiators, and what did they say? They said, all right, we'll agree to put language in there, uh, stipulating a certain number of nurses, social workers, They said, we'd like to talk to you, after all, about staffing issues, and we'd like to talk to you, after all, about class size issues. Now, let me ask you this. I'm not in the room. But, so at any point, does <laughs> after all these months where they rejected this uh, overture, rejected the notion that they were going to have this language in the uh, contract, you go on strike, uh, and then they say, okay, we'll talk about it. Did anybody on your side go, well, 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 look at what we have here. Does anybody, like, is there anything like levity at the moment? Just calling attention to the fact that... I mean, I I wasn't on the table team. I did um, spend a fair amount of time with their bargaining team, which is the... And these are all rank-and-file members, right? These are teaching assistants, school nurses, social workers, clinicians, librarians, high school teachers, elementary school teachers, English language learners, support staff. I mean, literally every element, you know, every student need that we have the capacity to address right now with our members through our members, those are the people on our bargaining team. Mm-hmm. Um, I know that the mayor has complained vigorously that the problem is we're just too damn democratic to get things done. Having been in the room with our bargaining team, I can tell you that there was no period once the strike started that the mayor's negotiating team didn't leave early, despite that commitment to go 10 hours straight at least. One day, We were waiting at 4 o'clock in the afternoon for the mayor's negotiating team to respond, not just to the proposals we'd passed off at 10 that morning, but the previous day. So this whole notion, you know, we're talking about lying or misinterpretation of how things actually went down. This, This constant smear campaign to try to beat down a basic democracy a fundamental commitment to basic rank-and-file democracy in this union that is the core of this union, um, to see that kind of smear campaign mounted on, against us was not unpredictable, and it was also really disappointing. Right. Uh, let me just say this, going back to why this is significant, uh, in my humble opinion, it, it, putting language in a contract that, that stipulates exactly uh, how many nurses are in a school or how many librarians are in a school, or you set up a formula to determine... Uh, 
uh, allocation of money uh, for schools. If, if class size is too high, there's money to hire another teacher. The reason that's important is because without that kind of language, uh, protecting the interest of school children, teachers, and people who rely on the public school, there's no uh, accountability on the mayor or the leaders of the Chicago public schools to actually lower a class size or put a librarian in. And they would say, uh, well, we've put, uh, we, we have in the budget, uh, we've budgeted, uh, they used to tell me this, Ben, a number of uh, positions for nurses, and I always point out that there's a difference between putting in a budget, a position of a nurse, and literally hiring a freaking nurse, because you, you, we all know, Chris, you've been around almost as much as I have, that budgets are just like drawing in a sand, and, you know, the next wave comes in can wash away the promise. Right. So you're asking for a real language, a specificity that they've never had to give. By, in fact, state law prevented you from asking that correct I thought that they were if they're really gonna play hardball they're gonna throw Stacy in jail for asking that correct because she was violating the law technically <laughs> I give Lori life for credit for not going there and um, so that's why that language was important and I'm really really disappointed with the people that run the city of Chicago that it took a teacher's I've always said Chris and feel free to vigorously disagree with me I think this absurd that it took a teacher strike to get the powers that be in this town to concentrate on an issue like class size in our poorest school or having social workers in our poorest school. I, I don't understand why it took teachers to go on strike for 10 days before the city of Chicago did something they should have done 20 years ago. Well, and remember that we have a mayor in office now who ran on literally our platform for equity and educational justice in our schools. Um, that's... That's that was her platform. So I think one of the things that it's really important for us to ask is when, you know, how do you make things that are not necessarily legal, but that are just happen? I mean, we have a long tradition in this country of a lot of things that are legal or not legal. And we have to ask, is it just that the law makes something criminal or not criminal? Is the law just if it makes marijuana illegal? If it makes marijuana the same kind of, you know, subject to the same kind of fel felony assault as like fentanyl or heroin, is that just? Um, was it just that the law for many years said women can't vote? Um, was it just that the law for many years formally said black people are only three-fifths human? Because that's what the law said till it didn't. And even when those laws change to be less repressive, less reactionary, less harmful um, to the dispossessed, the downtrodden, um, the abused, um, the practices that support those unjust laws persist. And that is what we have in a city like Chicago right now. The practices of institutional racism um, and, and really class disenfranchisement, uh, particularly when it comes to working class and low income people, those practices that have come up around the institutional legal framework of repression persist. Our job we really see is to advocate for our students. We know what our students need, and we know what they deserve. They deserve a nurse in their school building every single day, not for two hours, one day a week. They deserve, especially for kids in neighborhoods that are hard hit by institutional racism, institutional multi-generational poverty, unemployment rates that approach 
Depression-era levels. The very kinds of com uh, communities that are supposed to get things like TIF funds for development to float everybody's boats, when instead those TIF funds are going to build a new playground for, like, you know, more rich people on the north side of the city. Um, you know, our, our job is to really say... There is the law, and then there is what is right and what is just. And particularly with the person who currently occupies the fifth floor, every demand essentially aligned with what that individual ran on as a candidate. So we have to ask ourselves, what does it mean to confine ourselves to following a political platform and simply voting? Or what do we do beyond the silly season to try to make the progressive words that people utter real in our neighborhoods. All right. Now, let, you, you've raised uh, Lori Lightfoot's uh, campaign uh, rhetoric a couple times, so let me deal with that. My criticism of the Chicago Teachers Union is not the first time I've uh, uttered it, uttered it many times, including to uh, Stacy, is that I think you overplayed your hand in that election with Tony Perkwinkle. One, you made her out to be a champion that... I never saw in all my years, and I've been covering city politics for a long time, you turned her into the second coming of Harold Washington, uh, which she's not. And two, you completely, totally denigrated Lori Lightfoot, uh, even though there was really no track record there. So emerging from that, I think you overplayed your hand in uh, uh, whacking her. And even though she ran on, like you said, on your playbook, she was running on issues uh, that you championed. After that election, in my humble opinion, and this is just a sheer speculation because I'm not privy to her inner thinkings, I think in her mind she said, Chicago I, teachers. I, I can read those lips. Yes, <laughs> she, I can. Two middle fingers high in the air, Stacey Davis Gates. You think you're so badass going on the Ben Jarofsky show saying this, that, and the other thing? Well, beep you. Well, I'd buy that, except that we're not the only ones who are disappointed. And frankly, you know, she was at pains throughout the campaign to talk about how much she valued teachers. Obviously, she didn't appreciate the union that the teachers elected to represent them as officers, but whatever. Um, I would actually buy that, except that... Um, She's broken a lot of hearts besides ours. <laughs> you know, I mean, yeah. she ran promising grassroots groups and working class families in Woodlawn that she would absolutely embrace a community benefits agreement for people who are worried about being displaced from Woodlawn um, as they get going to break ground on the Obama library. And she hasn't done it. She ran as an ardent supporter of the rights of immigrants, including those who are undocumented. She promised immigrant rights groups, she promised our immigrant communities that she would actually close the Mack truck-sized loopholes, the carve-outs that live to this day in Rahm Emanuel's so-called welcoming city ordinance that basically provide a lot of nice lip service and no additional protections from persecution for immigrant families. Hasn't happened yet. Hmm. She promised to run as someone who was committed to real police accountability, that she was going to stand on not just making the police department better, but to make the police department essentially a more ethical and accountable institution. Um, 
hasn't done a damn thing. Every single group that stepped up that has been concerned about police accountability issues for years, um, that has been looking to move legislation through the city council that would actually provide that measure of public accountability, um, they've got nowhere. If you want to talk about the police department itself, they still don't have a labor contract for years. So we are not the only hearts that have been broken by this individual. And we have to ask ourselves, when you say you are progressive, what does that mean? And it means nothing except what you do. The first act of this mayor, literally a day or two before she was formally sworn in, was to grease the official skids for Lincoln Yards. You know, I think she should have taken that hit. If it were me, I would have said, you know what, I don't have the votes to stop this, and I'm still against it. Because that's what she said when she was a candidate. Mm. So, you know, we have to be savvy consumers of politicians. We have to recognize what some politicians have been honest enough to tell the people who are, you know, the voting constituency, namely, make me do the right thing. We have to be able to do that. So you don't think you overplayed your hand in that election? I, I personally did a lot of research on our current mayor. And, um, you know, had I represented Richie Daly in some of the legal cases that she represented him in on behalf of clear and naked police misconduct? No, if I felt comfortable, if I were committed to not being a liar, to call myself a progressive. Um, I remember her when she was head of OPS. I remember her, you know, response to community people who came into those monthly meetings sobbing for justice for their family members who'd been abused or sometimes killed. So maybe a lot of us in Chicago didn't know her because she'd always been pretty under the radar. Um, kind of feel like I kind of get to reacquaint myself with her record. Fair enough. Just for the record, Chris and I are not going to agree on absolutely everything. Absolutely not. not. We're not going to even get into the Bears and the Packers. Oh, man, oh, man, I can't have (laughs) that conversation. We won't have that conversation. So just for the record, we don't agree on everything. I think they overplayed their hand. She doesn't. Okay, let's move on from that. Uh, Oh, and I do want to say, too, I think it's really important to say, you know, nobody nobody out there, I think, you know, I I respect a lot of what President Pratwinkle is going to do. President Pratwinkle also fired me within an hour of her um, <laughs> you know of her inauguration yeah, you know as yeah. county board president so you know I think I think I think this <laughs> requires right. I think this requires an analytical take of okay what is the track record where can they be pushed how can they be held accountable um, there very well could have been a strike um, by teachers that had Tony Prattwinkle been elected board president as well you know we never expect an inside deal from any elected official we expect people to say what they mean hold themselves to the values that they profess they hold and then you know for us to respond when they get off that track mm-hmm. well that's some seriously what, derailing the bad derailing going I, on i here. agree there could have been a strike and what was absent and i think any objective analysis of what went down from the moment that uh, Lori lightfoot took office what was clearly absent was anything remotely resembling a conversation between Lori Lightfoot 
and the Chicago Teachers Union, be it Jesse Sharkey or Stacey Davis Gates. If she doesn't like Stacey Davis Gates, then she could talk to Jesse Sharkey. If she prefers him, if Jesse to Stacey, I don't know, it's like high school at some point, Chris. I don't like this one. I don't want to be in the room with that one. Now, there was no conversation. There was no time at any point that, correct me if I'm wrong, where just an informal conversation, go out for dinner, go out for a drink, whatever. Let's see, I campaign on XYZ. It's gonna be really hard for me to get that because the Tribune's gonna editorialize against me. So how can you help me build the public support for more money for uh, nurses, da 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 da. Let's talk about so, nothing like that. Absolutely nothing. No conversation at all whatsoever. Am I right about that? Well, um, over spring break, our, our now mayor did initiate a, um, a sit-down conversation with Karen Lewis, um, our beloved president emeritus. Um, and Karen, being Karen, of course, said absolutely happy to sit down and talk to you. Um, and the mayor never showed up. And didn't, you know, answer texts or calls about how that not showing up had happened. Do we just need to wait an hour? You know, what's the skinny? Um, they did finally meet. Um, but, you know, I, 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 I find it difficult to palm that kind of approach off on inexperience when you're talking about an extremely experienced trial attorney. When you're talking about someone who has worked um, either as the paid legal gun for or directly for um, city officials since the 90s. I, I, I just, um, I don't buy inexperience. Um, I I do wonder how different the priorities are. I know one thing that's been a real concern for me personally, given my job with the union, has been this spectacular and chronic disconnect between what we know is happening at the negotiating table between the two teams and what's actually coming out of the mouths of um, the mayor and her operatives on the fifth floor. Um, and it was really actually kind of hard to try to parse that out at first. Was she just not getting good information um, from her table team? Um, is it because she's not particularly experienced as a legal legal um, when it comes to these kinds of labored negotiations? Um, does, you know, she just prefer to play it fast and loose with the facts? And um, I think the jury's still out on which of those it is. Um, but it's been very disappointing to see this sort of endless kind of stream of disinformation come out of the fifth floor. And frankly, it's been disappointing to see at least one individual that I can think of that um, has done work for her through this contract campaign. Um, be a source of a lot of that disinformation on sort of the QT um, with a lot of forks for uh, folks in the fourth estate. Um, an operation that runs like that is an operation that doesn't put transparency, honesty, and accountability first. And that's very disappointing because that was the campaign platform that this mayor ran on. All right, let's put the campaign aside for a moment and talk about it. There was a, a issue of special ed that was in the Sun-Times, a very good article, very strong article. I'm trying to find it. Uh, of course, I don't have my uh, paper right to the, uh, the the page when it's in, but uh, so I just want to give the writer credit, whoever wrote it. But it was a good story, and it was talking about um, how special ed uh, teachers and special ed parents of kids with special ed needs were ups, uh, disappointed 
with the contract. Didn't think it went far enough. So this is interesting. <laughs> you got the Tribune on the one hand saying uh, that Lori was too weak into uh, uh, caving to the union, which I think is really unfair. Uh, and then you have uh, some people who are really, here we go, special ed, let's give credit. Lauren Fitzpatrick, all right, Lauren. Lauren wrote that story uh, saying that they didn't go far enough in the contract. My heart is with, I think I told you this, with these special ed parents and these Oh, teachers. yeah, they've been totally shafted, and their kids have been totally shafted. There's absolutely no question about that. Um, we fought in bargaining for what we called, for what our bargaining team members, the rank-and-file bargaining team members, called the Claypool Clause that was um, written to expressly deny CPS the capacity to do what they did under Forrest Claypool, which was to hire, you know, a clouded, you know, consulting company, um, pay them, you know, $10 million plus dollars to figure out a way to take $30 million away from special education students who are our most vulnerable learners. Um, I, I tried to connect Laura... Um, uh, Lauren Fitzpatrick with uh, one of our rank-and-file bargaining team members who was up to her elbows in reviewing counterproposals, crafting new language for our counterproposals, you know, in this tooth-and-nail fight that was going on across um, the bargaining table to try to get as much as we possibly could for special education students there. And I understand what parents are reading, and I think that there's been... Um, a, a lack of, and, and, you know, we have to take responsibility for this, that, that we have not done a good enough job in this very short window, essentially, since the TA was basically signed off on yesterday, um, to help special ed parents. TA being tentative yeah, agreement. Tentative agreement to Go help ahead. sped parents understand where we think we've baked in some language that is ripe for deploying and using as a wedge to push more within this contract that we've never had in a contract before. It is insane that we should have to put in a contract, CPS, you must follow local, state, and federal law um, that guarantees the rights um, and supports for special education students. But that is in the contract now. Um, it doesn't seem like it ought to mean anything because, you know, the response from, you know, some parents has been, well, Jesus, if they won't follow the federal law now, how on earth can you make them do that um, if they just don't care? Well, the leverage in a contract gives us a whole new set of tools and a toolkit to basically go after CPS to force them to do what they should do. It doesn't mean that that's always a fast process, but it is literally not... A union with no standing suing CPS in federal court um, or local court, as special ed parents have had to do, um, it is also us using the grievance process, the arbitration process, and our ability to organize in public to advocate for these students, um, put our own rank and file members out there front and center saying, look, this is what they're doing this is why they're not supposed to do it, not just based on that federal statute, but based on this contract and push more for them. And we did win some, you know, on, on purely practical levels in terms of staffing and needs. Um, we won some things that we think are extremely important for special ed students, not just more money to support them, um, but more staff to support them. And we think that's... Um, 
you know, is it what we wanted? Mm, hell no. Did we get what we wanted in this contract? Did we get what our students deserve? We did not. Instead, we had to fight tooth and nail. Sometimes it literally felt like for scraps. Yeah. You know, while CPS is busy raising its front office budget by 15%, right? Well, they run a comms crew with 20 people not counting their outside consultants because those are the priorities that CPS has, not the needs of special education students, not the needs of diverse learners, not the needs of English language learners, not the needs of uh, refugee and immigrant students. Every single chunk of of language that we could embed in that contract. Um, and our members still have to vote on that, you know, to accept that tentative agreement, right? It's not a done deal yet. Now talk about that. Talk about the procedure that's ahead of us in terms of approving the contract. So um, within 10 days, um, rank and file members in every school um, will um, hold a secret ballot, um, you know, much like an election, essentially. They will vote the um, uh, proposed tentative agreement up or down. Um, we have some workers who are citywide workers, um, a lot actually, you know, social workers, um, um, he uh, healthcare workers who are assigned to many different schools who are called citywide um, workers, and they'll probably vote at the hall. Um, it's also by secret ballot. Um, it's counted under care very careful oversight um, um, and supervision to, you know, ensure the rank and file folks who are voting that the vote is clean. Um, they don't have to worry about ballot stuffing like they would in, uh, I don't know, maybe, you know, Joe Barrios's home ward or something like that. <laughs> we do not run our, we do not run our, our elections like that. Um, Chairman Joe. Yeah. Come on. Uh, go on, Chairman but not Joe's forgotten. doing pretty good for himself <laughs> right, right I now. Feel so. I always like Joe Barrios. All right. Uh, so I see you. Well, there's a little history here. I don't want to bore uh, Chris with this recitation of history. Ugh. But uh, in 1999, don't quote me on the exact date, uh, Chris, uh, there was, <laughs> I believe, Vallis cut a deal with Tommy Reese, who was the head of the teachers union at that point. This was long before you were involved in teachers. And they, they, they proclaimed that the teachers union had passed it, had ratified it. And the late George Schmidt, who ran Substance, the alternative newspaper, started doing his own count his own like alternative count and he was like he was convinced george was convinced that they cheated <laughs> to quote trump the election was rigged uh and uh so i think procedures have changed since 1999 and uh of course uh debbie lynch had the her she cut a deal with Arnie Duncan, and the teachers voted that down. It was about 2003, I right, would say. Right, right. So this is not a slam dunk is what I'm saying. No, um, and, you know, our members are not automatons, you know. They um, are going to debate this in the schools. I think one of the things that um, it's really important for members, um, rank and file members in the schools to do right now is to take a look at the language that, we, you know, we lost nothing on its face in this contract. And there's some really substantial gains in terms of power that we are not allowed to have unless management decides to bargain by mutual consent. And of course, until we struck, management said, we're not bargaining with you on like the basic conditions in your schools for your kids. Um, so having that contract language is one thing. 
the other key component of that in our schools has to be actually making sure that members are well enough um, uh, you know, familiar with how to use that contract language uh, and well enough organized in their schools to actually force the schools to um, actually um, uh, enforce that language. Um, I can have rights up the wazoo, and if I essentially tacitly surrender those rights by not exercising them, then, uh, uh, you know, I've done nothing. So that's going to be a really important element of this. And we have mechanisms in the contract already. Um, so get to sound really eye-glazing and arcane to people, but... We've been able to win in contract language in previous contracts what are called professional problem committees um, in schools, PPCs, another great education acronym. Um, but that means that essentially principals are f and administrators are forced to deal directly with rank-and-file um, teachers in those schools through those PPCs, those professional problem committees, to try to actually resolve issues that are related to the enforcement of contract language um, and broader issues to school climate and culture to try to get at that grassroots level remedies in place and things change to make the educational experience better for kids. It's a way, if you will, of short-circuiting the grievance process, which can take a very long time because CPS's approach to the grievance process has been, even if you beat us in the grievances, and you usually do, we're just going to say we don't care and force it to arbitration, which is costly and can take months and months and months more. We have mechanisms to actually organize within our schools and engage directly with administrators, including principals, to try to get some of what we've won in this contract for our students right now deployed without having to jump through those um, additional procedural requirements. Um, and, you know, there are some principals out there that are bad principals. They just are. They're ambitious. They're going to go with what the front office and the network chiefs want them to do. And that is a very, you know, that is the neoliberal education deform agenda of an Arne Duncan or a Paul Vallis um, or a Forrest Claypool. And there are principals out there that were rank and file teachers for many years before they became principals, and they get it. Um, they want their school communities to be adequately staffed. You know, they would like a nurse in their school every day. They want their gen ed kids to have access to a social worker when they're confronting trauma, you know, because kids bring the challenges in their neighborhoods, in their home environments to the schools. We are literally the front line of supporting those kids. Um, and their parents, their families know that too, which is why I think given the enormous hardship that this strike is always going to be on families with less resources, um, the amount of support that we got from parents simply because we were asking for what they wanted for their kids as well has just been one of the most inspiring and moving and humbling things I have ever seen in my life. We had a lot of fun. Uh, on this show, about the only good thing that came out of the strike was he had always fun playing the Jesse Sharkey bit. Uh, do we have that? D? We got to we got to play that for Chris. We had so much fun with this one. Oh boy, Jesse was doing his one of his press conferences. He shows at Lane Tech Addison. <laughs> the listeners of the show have heard this a million times, but I just love that he's talking to the reporters. You know, they've all crowded around here. Pearls of wisdom Jesse has to offer, and uh, this talks gets to the heart of the support you're talking about. Check this out. Social workers, psychologists, counselors. Um, 
We think that adequate services for special education. a boy, Jesse, you try. Find that big trucker. Yeah, man, stick it to the man. Man, when you are organized, when you are organized yeah. as workers, when you are organized in solidarity with workers, I mean, we are powerful. People in this city got to remember, we have the capacity to push the people who pull the strings in the city to do right if we organize and you know we got stronger on the lines not weaker because we had that much more time on the lines to talk to our families you know who brought their kids out you know i mean you have people and we saw the same thing and we've had four charter strikes this yeah, year Yeah, no, that's a whole other story um, yeah and you know we saw the same thing in those strikes i mean and we're talking about low-income families who depend on those school breakfasts and school lunches and they were walk their kids in one door get them fed and walk them out the other door and stand with us on no, the pickup line. No, I, I got to tell you this. Uh, I think I've been thinking a lot lately, Chris. Maybe write a column about it. I don't know if I will, but the difference between the 2012 strike and this strike. And one of the striking, who oh, no pun intended, differences is that in 2012, I remember, oh boy, Juan Rangel. And some care he ran Uno and some character I always forget his name. He's the paid guy for the charter school network, having a press conference oh, downtown. Yeah, that guy and, whose yeah, name really uh, doesn't deserve. Whatever, does who cares not what deserve his name is? to be named? Yeah, whatever his I name is. I do tragically know it. Yeah, I, I, I actually do not know it, and don't tell it to me. Ew. Yeah. So anyway, Ew. they had a press conference. Our schools are open. Our schools are open. Well, not long thereafter, uh, Juan Rangel was ousted in a contract scandal involving Uno, and Uno is now a union school. Damn straight. Is, and so every single one of those schools first strike against a charter operator in U.S. history. And what did we get in that strike? We forced them to embed sanctuary language in a set of schools that is nothing but immigrant kids. We had to force them to do that. We forced them to address staffing needs. We, I, I'll tell you, our charters that struck this year actually set the stage because they can legally strike over staffing and class size needs. We cannot if we work in district schools. Every single one of those charter contract bargaining efforts and every single one of those charter strikes helped set, helped set a different set of standards that gave us the capacity in district schools to go there and say, really? You can't do this here? You got $7.7 billion that you're spending this year, the largest budget in CPS history, a billion dollars a year in new revenue rolling in, mm -hmm. because we fought for a more equitable school funding formula in Springfield, and yet you got to spend that instead on keeping those high interest rates in place for your debt holders, and you got to spend another 15% on your front office? Really? What are your priorities? Help us understand this. Uh, anyway, uh, that was, <laughs> Chris, what a great riff that was. But the point is, is that this year, there was some boy, some fellow still wrote a column about charter schools are a great alternative. I was laughing. I think it was in the Sun Times, may have been in the Tribune. Uh, and union charter schools are. Yeah, union, I was like, union, the charter schools are open. I go, oh, most of them, uh, most of those are unionized, uh, Mr. Whoever you were. Anyway, uh, Chris, it's a blast talking to you. I'm going to bring you back to talk politics in general. People should know this about Chris. Before she went to work for Chicago Teachers Union, she was literally out on the streets activist like a bernie 
little pass to the left of Bernie, perhaps. I don't know what you mean by that. Uh, which part? To the left of Bernie or on the street activist? Uh, whatever. Either one. And her only failing is she Green Bay Packer fan. We were going to say something? Uh, we have an update here. Uh, it's a national news update, but this is the last uh, podcast that we're going to do for the week, so oh. we may as well announce the news. We have a 2020 presidential candidate. No longer a presidential candidate. Let me guess. Candidate. I am going to guess Beto O'Rourke has dropped out of the race. All right. You want to take a guess, Chris, if you haven't looked it up already? Uh, I hope it's I hope it's Beto because I don't really dig him. And the answer? The answer is it's Beto O'Rourke. Yeah, <laughs> he dropped out of the race. Uh, let the record show that Chris is weeping. She loved Beto O'Rourke. She, really? she has a Beto O'Rourke T-shirt that God, she's wearing. He's, right? He's <laughs> got a very sincere look about him, and his track record on the issues is like no Beto. Who no. cares? Put no, make, no Beto. No. Get set him down to Texas from now until the election. Get him out working. Put him to work. There you go. Put Beto Good strategy. Uh, Good strategy. The, the Ben Jarowski strategy. We're gonna bring Chris back, whether she wants to or not, uh, away from teacher stuff and talk some politics as the campaign unfolds. It's good to get a little leftist perspective here. We'll get into the issue, the difference between a progressive and a liberal uh, and all kinds of good stuff coming down. Uh, a lot of Bernie people coming through this studio these days. I'm just going to tell you that, I like Chris. Bernie. Yeah, I, I like Bernie. I was drinking the Kamala Kool-Aid for a while. Hold on, Chris. Mm-mm-mm. Yeah, that cup's about empty. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> the Kamala Kool-Aid's now. It's it burns. <laughs> it burns. Uh, get it? It burns. Ooh. She's got a million of them, ladies and gentlemen. Uh, anyway, thank you so much, Chris. And My I, pleasure. I had to twist her arm to get her. Sort of a little bit. Not that much. Tiny uh, bit. Not tiny tiny bit. bit. But she's here. And uh, it was a pleasure talking to you. It always is t- fun talking politics. And that's the end of another Ben Jarofsky's bonus show. Take care, everybody. Bye-bye, Beto. This Ben Jarofsky Show Benny J bonus interview was brought to you in part by the International Association of Machinists and Aerospace Workers, not Aerosmith, Local 126 and District 8, the International Brotherhood of Electrical Workers, Local 9, the International Union of Operating Engineers, Local 150, and the Chicago Federation of Labor.